0: So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22. We're continuing our series in Luke, coming now to Luke chapter 22, verse 54 through verse 62, 54 through 62. We live today in an age and in a culture that is in many ways paralyzed by uh, a fear of failure. A fear of failure is, uh, is absolutely something that many in our culture today deal with and struggle with. And I think particular cases, particular areas that you can see this um, more prominently than others would be places like uh, college campuses. Uh, from my time that I've spent on college campuses, I can tell you that a fear of failure is alive and well on college campuses. Anxiety among college students is absolutely through the roof. I mean, absolutely through the roof. And when you begin to ask college students why that is, you might think that that college students have very little to be anxious about. I mean, they're young, healthy predominantly. Um, A lot of them are not uh, living on their own necessarily, but largely have a strong support system underneath them. Uh, By and large, very few uh, responsibilities and concerns. And yet, among college students, anxiety is absolutely skyrocketing. And I think one of the main reasons this is, it is largely driven by a fear of failure. Because when you talk to these college students, what you'll find out is that many of them, when you ask them, okay, what's causing you anxiety? What's, what is the problem? A lot of times it comes back to these kinds of fears. Fears of failing my classes, fears of not being able to get a job, fears of, of flunking out and losing money and, and all of these kinds of things. And by and large, a fear of failure is even though it's largely in the college setting and shows its head there, it's all throughout society. In fact, even for Christians, a fear of failure can be a very paralyzing thing. We see among Christians a fear of failure in all kinds of ways. Fears of of starting or or teaching a, a small group or a Bible study, for fear of messing up, of doing a bad job of teaching, for failing our students, fearing discipling someone else so that because we're afraid that they might see something that we do, that we might do something wrong, that we might be a bad mentor or, or fail them in some way. Even a fear, among, uh, a fear of getting married, fear of failing as a husband or as a wife, or uh, fear of failing as a parent. Fear strikes even among the most mature of Christians. We can become fearful, we can become anxious and, and afraid of failure in many ways. And as you can tell from my title of my sermon today, I believe that our text that we have here before us today helps to provide a remedy for Christians who struggle with fear of failure in their lives. Something interesting about um, the Gospel of Luke in this section of Scripture is that the Gospel writer Luke does not mention either of the first two trials that Jesus faces, the trial that he faces with uh, uh, Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest, and his father-in-law. Luke doesn't seem to be interested in mentioning either one of these, and it's interesting that he decides not to write about them, about what's happening as Jesus goes before Caiaphas, about how Jesus goes before Annas. Instead, what Luke focuses on is he focuses almost exclusively on Peter in this instance. We can see then that there is something of great significance that we ought to gain from this story of Peter that Luke is giving for us here in our text. So for this reason, we're going to be looking really closely at, uh, at the experience of Peter in this whole time period, this whole evening that is going on, and we're going to see what's going on here, and the example that, that Peter provides. Because it's been said that Peter is a sort of archetype of all Christians. That is, we can look at Peter's life, Peter's example that we have all throughout scripture and by and large he provides kind of the quintessential example of what christian life is that peter has experienced it and and or because christians have experienced it we can look at the life of peter and see he's probably experienced something very much like it the average christian life is by and large what we see peter going through through the gospels and just think about the this as we recall the last 24 hours of the story, what's happened in Peter so far. We see, first of all, a genuine love for Christ expressed by Peter. We see this expressed in in various places, but think specifically about in the upper room when Jesus is cleaning and he's washing the disciples' feet in this instance where Peter, out of a love for Christ and and a desire to not see him uh, shamed and to not um, see him in the wrong light, Peter... What does he do? He says, Lord, you will never wash my feet by no means. He says this because he he loves Jesus. He doesn't want to see him in this sort of servant role. And we know what Jesus says. He says, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no place with me. And Peter, again, motivated by a a love for Christ and a trust and a, a dependence on him, says, well, then wash all of me, Lord. Wash my hands and my head also. Certainly misunderstanding Jesus' point, but still demonstrating a, a genuine kind of love that Peter has for the Lord. And we see from this love an overconfidence demonstrated by Peter then after that. Through, we see through Peter's claim, his claim that he would never abandon Christ, if you remember from our previous sermons, he claims that he would never abandon Jesus, even to the point of death. Lord, I would die for you. And as we just said, that this is stemming from, this is coming from a genuine love that Peter has for the Lord, a, a love that causes him to say, Lord, I would never, ever, ever abandon you. He wasn't lying when he said this. This was a true thing that Judas was, or excuse me, that Peter was saying, that he would never betray Jesus. He meant it. It was motivated from a genuine love, but even though it was stemming from love for Christ, Peter's words demonstrate a sense of overconfidence and An overestimation of Peter's own strength and his own resolve. We see then, uh, further on, signs of weakness. The weakness of the flesh that rear their head in Peter. This is chiefly seen through Peter's and the other disciples' failure to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus commanded them to pray. And instead, what did they do? They slept. We see them being overcome by... The weakness of the flesh, which is what prompts that statement from Jesus, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We see from Peter a weakness of the flesh. And then ultimately we see a multitude of failings from Peter. Chiefly in our text today, as we see Peter's flesh dealing him a serious and, and devastating blow. And so with that, let us read our text today, Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. We are given in our text here today the archetype of Peter the great example in the case of what failure as a Christian looks like. And we're given this example not that, so that we will see Peter as a fool or an idiot or as a bad Christian, but so that we will see the dangers that lie before each and every one of us, even the greatest of us, and so that we can have hope in our weakness and in our failures. Now, this does not mean that we should seek to imitate Peter Peter is not set up here as the example of what to do, but rather we should learn from Peter's example. We should learn from what happens to Peter in our text today, and we should watch out for certain pitfalls. The first thing that we should learn from Peter's example in our text today is point number one, the ever-present danger of sin. Consider for a moment the gravity of Peter's fall in this story. This is the man who literally walked on water because he trusted in Jesus. The one who boldly proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ when Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? The one who is named first in every list of the disciples. In every complete list of the disciples, Peter is the first name listed each and every time, which which is significant. And look at where Peter is now in our story today. From the start, it's not a good picture. We don't see Peter looking good even from the start, as verse 54 says that Peter was following at a distance. No longer was Peter standing by his Savior's side. No longer was he ready to conquer the world for Christ. But Peter had abandoned Jesus to the mob. Peter was standing at a distance so as not to be associated with him. You see, in reality, Peter had already begun denying Jesus. He had already begun denying Jesus with his life and with his actions. And I would say that many of us in here today, though we would never actually and and probably will never actually verbally deny Christ, and I say probably not because we frankly don't live in a culture where we suffer with this kind of persecution, where we are, are required to deny Christ verbally like this. We still, by and large, live in a culture where it's acceptable to say you're a Christian. It's acceptable to say you belong to Christ, though it's increasingly becoming a a culture where it's not acceptable to live as though that is true. So I doubt many of us will ever find ourselves in a situation where we will verbally deny belonging to Christ, but we do often deny him by, in essence, following him at a distance. We deny Jesus by trying to blend into the crowd, by trying to blend into the world around us. And this is true for all of us, even your pastors. Even your pastors will find ourselves at times wanting to blend into the world, wanting to follow from a distance so as not to be associated. And I can remember one really prominent example for me. And if you are a Christian in here today, you know that these things stick in your mind really strongly there was an instance for me when I was in college and uh, I was a communication studies major, which is kind of like a, a psychology major. That's like the closest equivalent, if you ask me. Um, but it was a very liberal major. And we talked oftentimes in our classes about all kinds of, of um, very liberal concepts, all kinds of things that run contrary to the Christian worldview, run contrary to scripture. And I remember there was this one instance after class. Don't remember how the conversation came up, but there was a student in the class who was a homosexual and was talking with the professor about uh, a Christian one time telling them that they weren't a Christian because they were gay. And I heard the conversation developing. As I'm gathering up my stuff, class has ended, and I'm headed for the door. And I remember thinking, I've got to get out of here before this conversation comes for me because I don't want to have this conversation. And literally, as this person is talking with the professor, the professor knowing that I am planning on being a pastor, starts to turn to me and say, didn't, as though to bring me into the conversation. And then thankfully, in my mind, at the last minute, another student distracted her and she turned her attention and I like beelined it to the door. i was like, man, I got to get out of here. Do not want to be in that conversation. I do not want to have to say the things that I would have to say to that person. And in that moment, what was I doing? I was following Christ from a distance. I was like Peter in this story, where I was happy to to be called a Christian, but if I was gonna be in a situation where it was actually gonna cost me, where I was gonna uh, potentially uh, wreck relationships or be viewed as a bigot or be viewed in a certain light that I didn't wanna be viewed, I was happy to follow Christ from a distance in that moment. And I say this not to my pride, not to say this as a good thing. Again, like Peter, it's not the, the example that we wanna imitate. But we do this oftentimes, I think, as believers. We're oftentimes content to follow Christ from a distance rather than to stand boldly next to him and suffer with him. But the point is that the opportunity for failure is ever-present all around us, all the time. That kind of a scenario happens all the time. And we know it does. We can all in here, in our minds, think of situations we found ourselves in where we failed to live the Christian life that we ought to have where we, like Peter, follow from a distance and, though not verbally, in a sense, denied Christ with our lives and with our actions. The devil is cunning and is shrewd and is always ready to tempt us to deny Jesus, even in the smallest of things. We're just like Peter, where earlier in the story, he boldly proclaims that he would never betray Jesus, never, Lord, would I turn my back on you. I would die before I would turn my back on you. But just like Peter, when we actually find ourselves in these situations, we so often find our resolve and our strength lacking in the face of temptation. This has never manifested itself more in a more tangible way than in the experience of a young man who has grown up in the church, knowing Christ, and then gets into a relationship with his first girlfriend. And this is, again, me speaking from experience, where I, as a young man, having never had a girlfriend, But knowing the dangers of of getting myself in trouble, of premarital sex, of sin and and sexual temptation, I can literally recall myself thinking, I will never do that. I will never have a problem with sexual sin. I've gone 13 years, and I've never even been tempted towards sexual sin. (laughs) Not a problem. And then you get into your first relationship, and you realize, holy crap, my resolve is not what I thought it was. And that is absolutely the case in multiple situations. But I don't, can't think of any place where it rears it said more than that, um, uh, of this kind of overconfidence, this overconfidence like Peter had, where we think ourselves stronger and with more resolve than we actually have. This is the same kind of overconfidence that Peter had when he said, even if the rest of these leave, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you, Christ. We so regularly and so often overestimate our own ability and our, and our own strength and we underestimate the power of sin and temptation in our lives and that is ultimately what leads us to failure. We need to constantly be aware of the danger of sin that is ever before us, that is always around us. And more than that, point number two, we need to recognize the progressive nature of sin. Between verses 54 and 60, we see Peter dropping dramatically, going from bad to worse. And it didn't start in verse 54. Notice how even in the story, sin progresses from one degree to the next, to a greater and greater extent. It starts with Peter failing to pray in the garden that he would not fall into temptation when Jesus commanded them to pray. That's where it starts. But then it progresses to Peter leaving his Savior's side in the garden, and then looking on from a distance, now in the courtyard, it then progresses to Peter denying that he knows Jesus or that he was with him, and ultimately it climaxes in the most extreme instance where he not only denies Christ, but as Mark tells us, that he invokes a curse on himself and swears as he denies his Savior. Ultimately, this is rock bottom for a Christian but this is not beyond the reach of any of us. It is a a dangerous thing for any of us to think, I would never come to that point. It's easy for us to think that though. And yet that's exactly what Peter thought. It's easy for us to look at Peter and think, I would never deny Christ. I would never fail that far. But in saying that, we sound exactly like he did a few verses ago. And really, the better question is not whether or not we would, fail to the, whether or not we would deny Christ in our words and in our actions and, and cuss as we deny him, but rather the question we ought to ask is, would we ever do the things that led to this? So really, the question we ought to ask is, would you ever fail to pray the way you ought? Because for Peter, that's where his failing started. He failed in the garden to pray when the Lord commanded him to pray. And things become a little more real for us when we begin to ask ourselves that question. Have you ever failed to pray the way you ought? The answer to that is an absolute yes. And for Peter, that was the first thing. That was where he began to give the devil a foothold, was when the Lord commanded him to pray and he failed to pray. Here is where it gets very practical for us today. Because it is very easy for us to look at some great failure of some pastor or well-known Christian or celebrity worship pastor. And so easily attribute that kind of thing to the worst of people and brush it off. When we hear of a pastor or a theologian or, or an apologist or a, or a songwriter, whatever it may be, failing, whether it be for sexual temptation, whether it be um, uh, failing to and in, in committing fraud, whether it be whatever the case may be, It is so easy for us from where we are at to think, wow, I didn't realize that person sucked so bad. I didn't realize they were so terrible. When in reality, that is not beyond any of us. What we should think when we see something like that happen, this is what I think. Every time I hear of a pastor who has failed, a pastor who has fallen, a great theologian who has committed some sort of act of adultery or sexual sin, my first thought Ought to be, and and I think is many times, Lord, may that never be true of me. Save me from that, Lord. Because I know that in my own strength, in my own resolve, apart from the work of the Spirit in my life, that will easily be me. If I'm living my life out of my own self-confidence, out of my own strength, I will be the guy that falls into those sorts of sins. That's why it starts ultimately with prayer praying, confessing before the Lord our sin, asking for his strength, asking for the Holy Spirit to bolster our faith, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to prepare us for what lies ahead. We need to be sure that we're giving an accurate estimation of our own heart and our own propensity to sin, or we will end up at a place that we would have never imagined we would be. We will end up at a place where we say, I would never have done that. Thirdly, we see the anguish of sin, the anguish of sin in verses 61 and 62. Let's read there, verse 61 and 62. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the sayings of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I can only imagine The pain that Peter must have been feeling at this point. Satan had gotten a foothold on Peter and had dragged him down as far as he could take him. This was the sifting that Jesus had warned Peter would come earlier in this chapter. The sifting that Satan was given permission by God to perform. But as we know from the previous passages, Satan could take him no further than this. For Peter, this was rock bottom the place he never thought he would be, hiding out with the enemies of God, having abandoned him and denied him three times like a coward. And Peter does exactly what you might expect any, t- any Christian to do in his shoes. In fact, what any Christian should do in his shoes. After seeing the piercing gaze of the Savior, whom he had just denied with a curse, the text tells us that Peter went out and wept bitterly, went out and wept bitterly. Just a few passages earlier in our chapter today, just a few uh, uh, sermons ago, we saw someone weeping. We saw someone in agony, and it was our Savior. It was Jesus Christ. In the garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, and he was in agony, and he was weeping, and he was crying, and drops of blood were running down his face. And I think for Peter, it would have been a much better situation for him if he had found himself weeping next to Jesus in the garden rather than the weeping that we see here now. Peter's weeping is a sad scene, but it was an appropriate response. It was one of sorrow in keeping with repentance. A person who is truly repentant will display the fruit that repent, the, the fruit of repentance in various ways. And the first of those ways is remorse. It is sorrow. It is lamenting over our sin. If your sin doesn't break your heart, if it doesn't make you sad and sorrowful and want to weep when you recognize your own sinfulness and your own wickedness and your own heart, then something's wrong. This offers for us a distinction between Peter and Judas. If you remember from the book of Matthew, Judas also had a great sense of regret over what he had done. He regretted it greatly. And what did Judas end up doing? He ended up taking his own life. He went on and hung himself because he couldn't stand what he had done to Jesus. Peter here, having also fallen, having also messed up, having denied Christ three times, goes out and he weeps bitterly. The difference between Peter and Judas, though, is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. You see, Peter, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter, who is a follower of Christ, a truly regenerate person, what does he do? For Peter, this leads to sorrow and repentance, but the result for Judas is death. The result for Peter is grace and restoration, but the result for Judas is ultimately an eternity in hell. This is the difference between worldly regret and godly repentance. There is hope for the believer, even the believer who fails. In fact, I would say especially the believer who fails because all believers fail. And that's what we see from Peter. Point number four, the restoration and keeping of Christ. This passage depicts for us one of the saddest pictures of just how low sin can bring the child of God. It is a sure thing that Peter never felt worse than in this moment right here. Never had he felt worse in his entire life. But there is something really, really cool that we can see and take heart in, in this most sad moment. Remember that even though Peter probably did not believe it at the time, Jesus had already predicted that Peter would fail. Jesus had already predicted that he would deny him three times. Peter probably thought Jesus was wrong. He probably thought, nope, nope, that's not going to happen. I'll prove him wrong. I know how much I love you. I know what is true of me even more than Jesus. He's wrong. I'm not going to deny him. But indeed, Peter did. He fell exactly the way Jesus said he would. But let's remember that there's something else that Jesus predicted in that same instance when he predicted his fall. Look at Luke chapter 22, verse 31 through 32. This is as Jesus is predicting that Simon Peter is gonna fall. And he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter had a promise from the Son of God that even though he would fail, even though he would fall miserably, which he did, his faith would not ultimately fail. Jesus promised a restoration to Peter. And the Lord did restore Peter. In fact, from this moment, it was only about 50 days And where do we find Peter, and what do we find him doing? Fifty days after this, we find Peter preaching the sermon at Pentecost, boldly proclaiming the truth of Jesus as the Son of God, boldly proclaiming that Jesus was crucified for the forgiveness of sins, and laying the groundwork, laying the foundation for the church. And thousands came to faith. What an encouragement this is for us, church family. That even as we see Peter at his lowest point here in the book of Luke, we know that restoration comes for Peter. That grace comes for Peter. That his faith does not ultimately fail. But this is a temporary failing. This is a temporary falling. It is a limited fall for Christ had prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. And this promise that's made to Peter Peter, that his faith would not fail is made to us also. Because when Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he prayed it for all who would believe, not only for the 12. And we have the same encouragement from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And this is, in essence, the encouragement that I would give to you today, where John says in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the good news of the gospel that is true in Peter's life, and that is true, and that is true in our lives as well. If we have trusted in Christ Jesus, if we are His, if we are united to Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, that is the thing by which we are judged. Not by the moments when we fail, not by the moments when we fall, not by an all the times when we don't live up to what we have been called to. That is not what, ju- what we are judged by. We're not judged by our good deeds either. We're not judged by the moments when we were doing so awesome and we think we have everything on track because even that's not good enough. The point of the gospel is that when we stand before the Lord on judgment day, we are not judged by anything in ourselves, but we are judged by a righteousness that is alien to us. We are judged by a righteousness that is not our own, but one that has been counted to our account, Jesus Christ's righteousness. That is the means by which we are judged. That is why we will never fail, because Christ didn't fail, and his righteousness is ours. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why Peter's faith ultimately did not fail and grace and restoration and mercy was his and is ours also because of the good news that Jesus is our propitiation. He is the perfect savior that we need, the lamb of God who was slain for us. Take heart in this church family. Let's pray.